Good afternoon. It is afternoon. And um, we are going to have another conversation for the Dissect podcast. We are once again on the road today. We're actually sitting in beautiful Ketchum, Idaho, or are we technically Sun Valley? Ketchum. Ketchum. So we're in, we are in Ketchum. Uh, I'm here and Michael is here and we are sitting with um, uh, someone who, now I'll just drop it now, who's been a hero of mine for a really long time. No way. <laughs> Rebecca Rush. And um, magically, this happened. I, d- I don't, I mean, it was sooner or later, we were bound to meet. Um, Rebecca, she took the first steps a couple of years ago when she had, I think, had just started the Rebecca's Private Idaho. Uh, was it even, was it called a gravel race then in the beginning? Yeah, it was or was still just a like, gravel race, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so she invited me. Um, I wasn't into it at the time for whatever reason, being a, kind of a diehard roadie, but now I'm going to call myself a grody. <laughs> <laughs> just, a new term just coined today. Yeah, <laughs> the grody lifestyle. And because uh, I, yeah, so I refused then, thought, wow, this will never catch on. <laughs> and then yesterday on the start line, 1,200 people are there not catching on, apparently. Yeah. So, um yeah just so the most recent history is that uh, yesterday was um th- the big potato ride of Rebecca's private Idaho race uh well attended with more than 30% but less than 40% female yeah right around we've each year this is year 6 we've hit about 30% female participation every year which I'm pretty proud of but I challenged all the riders uh, to help me get to 40% next year perfect perfect um and I uh, rode this event yesterday and, and the uh, two other stages that um, comprised the uh, first official year of the Queen's Stage Race. And then um, I actually kind of trained for it. I had my friends facilitate and, um, you know, come to Salt Lake, make me do training camp. What was the training program? <laughs> oh, just... Beat up Mark. Like, <laughs> take him up the canyon and beat the pants off of him. Yeah, have a good, um, our good friend, uh, Joe Holmes, he's actually a Seattle guy. He will be here next year, Joe, um, because I did make him buy a gravel bike, which isn't set up yet. Um, and he's been uh, racing his bike. I don't know. He did the Windsor crit yesterday and... You know, he said, yeah, the first time I did it was, you know, he was a child because <laughs> he's from Ohio. Um, anyways, he Seattle guy has got a huge um, uh, bike racing background and, and great coaching experience. Logan Owen, um, who just joined the Pro Tour team for the first time this year. He basically formed that kid since he was 10 years old or nine, maybe. Um, and he's got two... Uh, one of those silver medalists. Yeah, silver, medal, silver medalist at Rio. Anyway, he's uh, it, it, he invited me to sit in the team car. He was uh, directing for the Hoggins-Berman team when they got an invite in 2010 to the Tour of Utah. 
and we'd never met, but he sent me blind emails. He said, Hey, would you like to I know you're into racing bikes? And I used to be into climbing and I know who you are. And here are our mutual friends. And would you like to sit in the team car, um, for, you know, one or two stages at the tour of Utah? So like, I don't know who the fuck you are, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we developed this amazing friendship. So every time he comes to Salt Lake, uh, he sleeps on the couch and he makes me ride my bike. Every day. Awesome. You, it seems like there, because I, you know, know of you, you're a hero of mine from rock climbing as well, from another lifetime when I was doing that a lot. And it's interesting how many people are finding cycling from other sports and then to have you sitting in my house here. Um, one of my heroes uh, sitting in my house, in my office, talking to me. It's pretty cool. But it's great how people find cycling as such this great, like, connector, I think. Yeah. And, and the, the, for me, the beautiful thing, I mean, it started... I rode my bike when I was a kid, um, but I had shoulder reconstruction in October 2006. And so for the next eight weeks, all I could do was sit on a bike on a trainer, hugging my pillow with my left arm. And by the end of that, I thought I uh, went over to Tosh to visit Max Testa and asked him, hey, would you do a little, like stress test on me and on a bike? And because then I'm running and this and that. And so he put me on the bike and after he said, how old are you? And he said, well, if you paid attention and learned how to actually ride, you know, you're fit enough to do this. And so 2007, I started racing and had four pretty darn good seasons. Well, you know, three seasons where I time trialed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and then, it, yeah, and then it gets, anyway, um, and now and, you're a grody. And now I'm a grody. And, but, the, <laughs> but the cool thing about the bike, what I realized was that it can take you really, really far. Not just in you know, geographic ideas, but also in your head. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that is sort of has in the past most... We'll talk about the adventure racing thing at some point, but, but mostly what has impressed me about you is just you're a, 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 like 24 hours. On a bike, 350 miles on a bike, which probably was a little bit more than 24 hours, I'm guessing. But Yeah, I think that Dirty Kanza, the one you're referring to, Dirty Kanza XL um, 350, I think it took me 26 and a half or 27 hours. It's yeah. a long time to be in your head. It was, I loved it, actually. It was a vision, it's a vision quest. And that particular ride, I hadn't put in the training for it, really. Um, it been working a lot, trying to get Private Idaho off the ground. And um, I actually really looked forward to escaping technology, phones, emails, all that stuff, and turned turned everything off and just uh, turned on, essentially, in my head. The only digital things I had going were my Garmin, and I actually listened to uh, uh, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance mm -hmm. while I was riding no that way. ride. <laughs> so I, it, 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 I needed to unplug in that way, and it was the perfect audiobook for... For that oh my goodness yeah i'll say <laughs> um so in the beginning as a youngster um well okay so so my idea of you you like were born formed in the third time of the rad gal was like <laughs> and, and, and prior to that i know nothing and i'm just i so i'm, I'm kind of curious because at that time the adventure racing scene was not huge it's before the Eco Challenge. It's before all variants, you know, that came after, um, it seems like. It seemed like it was the era that if 
the people who took care of their feet the best were the ones who won. <laughs> yeah, adventures. I mean, it was taking care of your body um, and being able to navigate. Those were the two. Use a map, a proper map and compass, not, you know, your phone um, that didn't exist at that time. So, yeah, the people who could take care of their body and the people who could be smart um, and figure out figure out the way. And adventure racing really was my education in endurance sports. I, I mean, I started high school running, uh, found the cross country running team and found a group of friends and, and ran a little in college and, and, and then found rock climbing after that. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of different sports, paddling, rock climbing, adventure racing, but really adventure racing was where I was putting together a lot of different sports, but also the cerebral aspect. And it's something that I loved about climbing too is, it's not just who has the biggest VO2 max, who has the strongest quads wins the race. Um, I really like the kinds of events where you have to think about it and you have to plan and you have to use your brain as well as your body. And adventure racing really did feed that for me. And it's, you know, my PhD in endurance sports comes from that. And, and also learning about people because it was a team aspect as well. You had to stay together. And so you might be doing great and, you know, on your teammates having a downslide and and then the tables turn you're feeling down your teammates feeling good and so it really did teach me one how to motivate myself and keep myself going but also to look at the responses in other people and some people need a hug some people need a punch in the arm and to be told you know suck up let's go you know um and it really i i learned a lot about teamwork and people and i, and I use that every day what yeah. were the size of the teams four then, person so and so they're forth. usually they had to be co-ed yeah um so most of the teams only elected to have one female uh i did a couple events that were really great um we we finished fourth in eco challenge one year with a three female one male team and nice. that was pretty unheard of um and it just really did showcase that it's in those super long endurance events, your gender really doesn't matter. And that was a really cool event to be right up among the best in the world. And, um, you know, three women, one man. Weird to, uh, but in my head, I equivalent, especially like females having a bit better pain tolerance than males. Like the absolute speed always goes to obviously like males are a little bit faster, but in like an adventure sense, I would think that females would be, uh, the wanted team members in some cases, but maybe it's just cultural that stopped that from happening. It, it depends on the guy, you know, if, if some, yeah, definitely some teams looked at the woman as a piece of mandatory equipment. Like mm-hmm. you have to bring your headlamp, you have to have a woman on your team, you know, <laughs> you have to bring the satellite radio. Right. Check, she rides check, the check. horse whenever there's a horse involved yeah. and we'll just want, or whatever there. Yeah. And, and the more enlightened, males who've who've spent time you know doing ultra endurance events um obviously don't feel that way and and see the value in having a female teammate i mean i do think the ideal team be two men two women Mm -hmm. and because everybody does bring something different to the table and a little bit of different personality and you'd see a lot of the the really sort of machismo male teams like it happened all the time. The Navy SEALs would come in and feel this super strong team and they wouldn't do well because they weren't really good at you know well because everything's a nail uh, yeah and it's <laughs> and it was very much too many type a people you know i will say that women are collaborative mm-hmm. and you know we'll ask for directions well it's easier to say oh i'm hurting you know i need help 
it's not easy for a big strong dude to say hey can you help me can you take my backpack yeah in my experience on being like on uh for crossfit competitions we'll have two males two females and those are my favorite teams that all male teams generally never work very well because everybody wants to be the show pony like every and the the coordination that happens with two females given the right athletes it works seamlessly almost like there's a nurturing side and then there's also just this like pain tolerant side which brings me to my real question <laughs> which is how did you get the name the queen of pain the queen of pain yeah um that was given to me during my adventure racing days okay. it was a headline on a, a magazine that that doesn't exist anymore but um yeah, sort of referring to the infamous Ultra Sport magazine. <laughs> what, no, it was like 80s? Adventure <laughs> Racing Magazine oh, okay. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, one of those magazines that doesn't exist anymore that was a very small group of people who read it. Um, but yeah, it was given to me in my adventure racing days. I, I was the captain of our team, mm-hmm. you know, sort of had a reputation for not quitting, um, doing extra hard things, kind of a lot like like Mark. Um, but me, the I, king I of look pain at it, over yeah, here. King of Pain. I look at it more of like the queen of perseverance, though. I I would absolutely say, and, you know, with all the Red Bull testing I've done and my physiology is, you know, average Mm -hmm. and VO2 max is average. Um, But I have something in me that is a staying power and not quitting attitude that um, is world class. And that has made up for, you know not being a specimen, a physical specimen. Is that is that one component something that you think you can learn? Or do you think that it's highly like, maybe it's a, a, maybe learn and environmental stress might be the same thing here. But if you put yourself in enough situations where perseverance leads to a good result, then that's a learned ability. Or do you think that that's something inherent that you've just had throughout your life, like the ability to persevere? I think you can hone that skill, but I do believe that people like high alpine mountaineers, you know, there's certain groups of people that I think you're born with that mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think you can develop it and hone it, but I don't think if it's not there, it's just not there. Right. You know, from the start. I know maybe Mark has a different opinion, but I, I was still stuck on the the poor physiology thing and thinking <laughs> um, that 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 is actually advantageous in the sort of long term like the, the things or, or maybe we just um uh find our way to the things that we will be good at given a you know lame because i have a pretty shit vo2 max and all right cool and i <laughs> think too. like the week before i came up here um had some blood work done and my hematocrit was 37 you know, so I'm like, oh, it's still normal. Yeah, it's, I think it was 37.5, which means I'm not the very bottom of, you know, low normal. I was like, what do I, <sighs> I guess it's always been like this. The highest I've ever seen it was like 41 or something. And and I just, get, I can't, It nothing about me, because I was never a very good technical climber. And I just, you know, would go harder and longer and maybe smarter. And then for me, the relationship with risk was different than other people. And that's yeah, what allowed me to do some of those things. But I, but I, I, I think that the, um, sometimes, you know, if you are gifted with great physiological characteristics, uh, you don't develop your mind 
in the same way because you don't necessarily have to. It's almost like your body does it for you. Like in the people that I've worked with that are genetic absolute thoroughbreds, I've noticed that they have some of the weakest psychology. And if you find somebody that has like a combination of good physiology, like at least good enough physiology with this mixture of like a mentality that can persevere or handle pain or whatever, whatever you want to call the mindset, they become freaks and we're world champions. Like looking at a young Payson, I go, okay, that like there's when they come together. His, his mindset is on point for like developing into a phenomenal athlete. And then he has a carriage and buggy that just like can romp all over the place. So that's like a, a freak thing. But in most of the people that are, I mean, people refer to you as a freak. Like the stuff really? that you do, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> How could they not? Like you just look at the list of stuff and you're like, oh, like Leadville, 24 hours. Like all the things when you look at a, you're just like, oh, that person is not like normal people, which you're not. Like you're not a normal person, obviously. Thank you. But, but you know what, I mean, I think of the same thing. It's like, I am physiologically unremarkable in every single way. And the, like, the only reason to compete is because, okay, I know that that's a baseline. I think like seeing a Matacrit of 36, I go, yeah, of course. Like, but if it was different, then I would be different. Like maybe, what if I saw a 50 or something and I'm like, who snuck EPO into my blood or like whatever happened, I would be in this immediate, like, well, now what? I'm still just as slow. Like I still have to figure out this thing on top of my body first. And so there's there's this unremarkable body that I think that a lot of people have and then they have their their strong points are their, their psychology surrounding their efforts. And I think that's something that like, I like to get down to that because I don't like being, oh, well, that person's a freak, write them off. Like, I think that's the worst thing that we could do because if we, look at somebody like yourself when we go, well, actually she's like physiologically the same. Like, yeah, training, you know, she has, you know, this kind of power output, but her, you know. Now you have like a 30 year base. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah there's some experience exactly. there that helps. <laughs> but in the, in the end, if you go, no, she had to just like not quit too. Like we're all just trying to not quit. She just doesn't quit better than you. Well, and that's why, I mean, I tell the stories. Yeah, I have, you know, sort of breathing problems. I don't have the best lungs, you know, kind of trending towards asthma. Um, I'm 50 years old now. Um, I didn't start mountain biking until 38. Like, I, I tell people those things not to impress them, but to to your point, to show them that, yeah, a regular person, I, I don't view myself as a freak. I view myself as a regular person and that regular people can do extraordinary things, especially if you have the right mindset. 38. I just heard 38. You didn't pick up a mountain bike till you're 38. Yeah. And when you picked it up, and obviously you're probably the personality type that when you pick something up, you do it correctly. Like, what was that trend? Were you just like, I love this. I'm going to do this all day. Every no, day? cycling was part of adventure racing. Sure. Um, and so you did have to ride a bicycle mm -hmm. in as one of the stages mm -hmm. and it was always my weakest point um i really hated those <laughs> i hated those sections of the courses and it would be on a bike that they provided no you you brought your own bike oh good like oh. I, I just i was never a cyclist mm -hmm. and those were just the sections i just struggled to get through and when i, I never did cycling training at home i just i hated it yeah. i didn't like it and um when adventure racing kind of folded and, and came to an end i was left true story with one year left on a Red Bull contract and my team had fallen apart. I had a friend who was killed adventure racing with Rockfall, oh. And I was just kind of like, yeah, 
I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Sponsorship's gone. What am I going to do? And I had one year left with Red Bull. And he just said, well, find something to do. And we're not going to, you know, we're not going to take the money back. You've got a year. And hmm. so I just like, all right, well, play around for a year. We'll see what happens. And all I knew is that I wasn't really technically good at, at any sport. I was okay rock climber, okay paddler, hmm. okay runner. Um, but I could go long. And so I looked for the longest event I could find. And those were 24-hour mountain bike races. And for me, that was short. I'm like, 24 hours, that one night, I'll be stay up one night, no big deal, be, you know, take a shower the next day. And so the distance to me, and you know, that was quote unquote a sprint. Um, the only downside is that I couldn't really ride a bike. So the first, did it, the first 24 hour, I know, one hiccup. Um, first 24 hour race I did, I ended up running all the technical sections. You know, I'm mm. like, well, let's just see how this goes. I, and... I had the nutrition dial, I had the mindset dial, like that was no big deal, I just couldn't ride. Um, I ended up running a lot and jumping back on my bike and because that's how I survived the adventure racing bike sections. I just get on and off as quickly as possible and that first race I did, um, I ended up beating everyone, the men included. And uh, so called up Red Bull, said, well, I guess I'll do this for a year. I think I found something. The only problem was I couldn't ride. And that's my husband, um, I had met him and and he's a really good technical mountain biker. And so we started, you know, the journey to learn to ride a bike and um, got a coach, our mutual friend, Matthew, who Mm -hmm. was a bike racer. He's like, well, I can help you. He had been an adventure racing teammate. And so... That kind so of was started. he the one male on the on the three? <laughs> he was not. Three women? not I was just going to say that team because but. mentally he could. I mean, my impression of him is mentally he would be one of the few guys I know who could actually yeah. be okay in that. Spot. He's a great teammate, and yeah. uh, I went and asked for some help, and that was really my first formal started my first formal training um outside of high school cross-country running Mm. you know all the other stuff had been reading books like yours and just kind of you know piecing it together but matthew's like okay we're going to do a training program and i was like you mean i don't just go out and do stuff for as long as possible (laughs) Um, but it was really exciting because that at 38 basically is Mm. where i felt like i really got an education in power meters and training and heart rate and resting and periodization i had no idea about that stuff before and it it really bumped everything to the next level when I got educated. And people were like, how do you get so much better when you got older? I'm like, I just got smarter. And I learned how to do more with less time. I actually trained less amount of time and more effectively. And it, it's been really cool to have this second part of my career be the most successful part. Oh, yeah. I, I And that's the kind of thing. One of the things that we've, we've talked about... Um, something that you, you said that, you know, I don't consider myself a freak. I just think that people, you know, don't believe in themselves enough that, in what they are actually capable of. And when Michael and I have worked on various movie jobs and we've gone, we've taken these people through these, on these incredible journeys of, you know, not only physical, but psychological transformation and tried to counsel them on how to speak about it so that they didn't set themselves so far apart that no one was willing to try. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, you get somebody, you go, look, you're an utterly normal person and you did, and you went through this process and became this thing that these people revere. Now you're going to go on this press junket mm-hmm. and you're going to sit in front of a microphone and you're going to go like, I eat kale and dust and I train 27 hours a day, <laughs> you know, all the shit that's virtually impossible. And I'm like, no, you actually didn't work that fucking hard. We just forced you to, you know, we just made you pay attention and gave you the right supporting me- and support mechanisms. And the more you say, this is really hard 
to satisfy your own ego in front of the microphone or the audience or whatever, the more you put it out of reach of the people you could give the most help to mm -hmm. by just telling the truth mm -hmm. of it. And, and to, and then to think that, Oh, at 38 years old, you know, I, you kind of did everything just sort of freestyle up until that point. Mm -hmm. And, um, my friend, my cycling friend down in Moab, same, same kind of thing, a really good mountain bike racer and done well at crusher and stuff like that. And he, we were on a ride and he goes, I think I need to get my legs stronger. And I said, well, what do you do? And he said, I've never done any formalized training. <laughs> oh, wait, you got to this point you know mid 40s mm -hmm. this level of ability these results on you know on your road bike on your cross bike on your mountain bike without any formalized training oh my god the world is your oyster it's open it, you it's can... exciting to know that you can progress really at any age if you actually put some attention into it and but to your friend's point i mean it's also exciting and for me like you can get to a certain level on just doing things that are really fun and on passion yes. alone of I'm going to go ride my bike. I'm going to go rock climbing. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go climb up that hill that sometimes, I mean, people get so caught up now on the mm -hmm. uh, flip side of it. I see somebody who's going on a beautiful bike ride and they're staring down at their Garmin and their power <laughs> exactly. meter and they don't even realize what's going on around them. And so you can go too far the other way with technology. And I, I always tell people, you know, you don't need the technology. Um, I mean, I got pretty far without even a heart rate monitor for years. And yeah. power has only been in my training regime for, I don't know, eight years or so. And so you can get pretty far with, with just doing things that are fun and just pushing yourself a little like, oh, how can I get up to that tree up there? Yeah. Can I pick up it, this rock and throw it a little further than the next time? The, I mean, I do that on my trail runs. I throw rocks. I've seen <laughs> references. It's 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 funny though. Like we get caught in this conversation. I mean, the, being in sort of that fitness side of things, you know, what's the best workout for X result or Y result that they're trying to achieve? And you're like, after I mean, the two questions I ask now, if it's if it's someone who's completely fresh and trying to figure it out. I ask them what they like to do because mm -hmm. that's the only thing they're going to do. Yeah. Like no matter how, this is the best thing to achieve X. If you don't like doing it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And then the, then for more um, advanced athletes, my question is always, what is it that you don't do in training? Mm -hmm. And it, the answer comes back, you know, I don't go, you know, Michael's answer. It's like, uh, I never ride my bike for more than 90 minutes, 90 minutes <laughs> until okay. yesterday. Until, yeah. yeah. You got like four workouts in yesterday. Or yeah. If it, was, if it was a gravel crit race, I would have had a great time, but yeah. <laughs> we all know what's missing. We don't need to talk about that part. Yeah. But, but other guys have, have yeah. come, uh, but another friend of ours, you know, ski mountain ring racer, same kind of thing. He's like, yeah, we're sitting down and I just asked him, what don't you do? And we identified immediately. Okay. This is, the sort of time domain. This is why when these races go off so hard for the first five minutes in any of those uphill ski races, um, cause everybody's fighting for position. It's just like a, a you know, across, you know, you're going for the whole shot essentially. Yeah. Cause it's going to get down to from a wide start. You're going to get down to two, one or two skin tracks. And mm -hmm. if you're not there in the top five, then you're not going to finish in the top yeah. five probably. And so it, it's, I, I think it, it's less complicated for people to find a way to change uh, themselves 
in, in not only physical, but psychological characteristics, but like, okay, this is what I like to do. This is kind of what I want to do. I see something over there on the horizon that's kind of tempting or attracting me in some way. And, and you don't need the most complicated technical, technological means of getting there. And I'd say in most cases, it, it, it works against you, mm-hmm. uh, especially if we have comparisons now. Like one of the great things about, we mentioned this with uh, Tim and Payson was one of the great things about bike racing is you are right next to the people that you look up to. Like I can go literally ride the ride that you rode and be like, holy fuck, she's fast. <laughs> like, or however that goes. And I okay, cool. I can work to get better slowly. And so, oh, look, I made up like, you know, out of the 90 minute difference between me and somebody else, I made up 30 minutes of it this time and then 45 and I can see incremental changes. And that's a really like, that's throwing the rock. That's a really basic. I'm just using time as like the only indicator of my progress. Um, but when you come out and you, you know, oh, I want to start riding a bike and have a power meter and I have a heart rate monitor and I have a cadence meter and I have all this stuff. I'm, I'm not ever learning to feel anything. Yeah. I'm just learning to like go off of what the computer tells me. I'm like, Peter says no, or <laughs> whatever the, I, like, we have a friend, we tell this story quite a bit, uh, Sean, who was doing the big cottonwood um, hill climb one year, and he was in the, uh, uh, the he's, he's up front, yeah, up front yeah. in the break, and he looked down on one of the, like, steepest sections, and he's like, oh, I'm hitting max heart rate. I know, he's two beats oh. per minute Above. over max, over his, like, formally tested max heart rate. Mm. So he lets it go. So he slows down. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, what if that was just somebody else's heart rate monitor? Or what if it was just a blip? Or what if it was wrong? Or like, did you feel? I mean, yeah, that heart rate, you're probably like, I'm looking for any excuse I can to not go with this because the pain is really bad. But the machine just let me down. And that's usually how I see it works. Like I was obsessed with power data when I was racing, all that stuff, because it was... You know, it was a comparison tool for somebody who was marginally okay at the sport. So I like, yeah, my 20 power, minute power test is above everybody else's, but I'm losing races. There's a problem there. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. yeah, I'm not feeling where my, you know, I'm just going off the, the data. I, I mean, the data, it's, it's super valuable training tool mm-hmm. to know, you know, oh, I, I'm doing these intervals. Mm-hmm. I'm not recovering in between. Okay, the day is done because you're not actually getting any more benefit out of doing intervals. And you can see what I really liked about power is you could see these incremental improvements because I train alone a lot. Sure. And there'd be, you'd uh, am I fit? I don't know. I've got to show up to a race against my competitors to find out. You, there's this nebulous thing. I've been doing the work, but I don't. I can't see the progress. Mm-hmm. And that was cool. The power meter from workout to workout, you can see it. But like when I'm racing, you know, Leadville Trail 100, you know, won that multiple times, and I record the power mm-hmm. and the data to look at later. But I'm not mm-hmm. racing with it. I'm racing on perceived exertion, how I feel, and I believe that you know because I don't want to limit myself. If I think, and I'm good at pacing, I know what 100 miles feels like, and, and it hurts to go really hard and try to win level 100, but I don't <laughs> want to be limited by, oh, could I have gone a little harder? It's basically, I just like paddle my guts out and look at the power later. Well, and I-, I do think people are missing that, knowing your body enough, like without the tools, um, to know, hey, where is that threshold? And then I'd like trick myself and be like, 
when I'm doing intervals, like, oh, it feels like maybe I'm at this many watts when I was first getting educated. I look down and be like, oh, yeah. And so you start to know mm -hmm. exactly what that zone feels like. You don't actually need to look at the device. And I think that back up, backing away, like using technology to get a sense of what the uh, actual power output or heart rate is or whatever the whatever the quantification is, and then closing your eyes kind of deal, letting it go, and then perceiving what it is. that That's the real like integration of using power and technology. The one thing that I like, in, not to stay on the subject because it gets pretty old, but I think, it, I think it's a big distraction for people looking to cross bridges into efforts. And one of the hardest things to look at is like sports science is built around all these numbers and metrics and things that we can show that improve it. And we constantly try to find like human limits. And that's kind of the point of these metrics. We're always trying to find human limits, except we find a measurement point and we identify what the limit is. Like if we, you're- We put the number on it yeah, and then like therefore 6. it is. 6.7 watts per kilo. It's not humanly possible or whatever. Well, who says? Like, well, you look at the four minute mile, you look at that <laughs> example and the whole story of Roger Bannister yeah. breaking that. And as mm -hmm. soon as it was broken, bam, 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 five other people yeah. who had been vying for it broke it right away because and, they believed it could be done. And, and in our era, let's say yeah. of climbing, yeah. you know, how many people were climbing 512? Right. You know, and as soon as and a lot of people could climb 511, as soon as that barrier got broken and there was the 513 barrier, then it just dragged everybody else up because everybody's mind was opened. It they was no believed. longer this, yeah. you know, the goal that had become a limitation. And and uh, and I think we're, you know, we, we sabotage ourselves quite effectively, I mean, you know, by and oftentimes we'll use those numbers to, to mm -hmm. do it. It's but. limiting for sure. I mean, we do, we did a really cool brain training camp and, mm -hmm. uh, Tim Johnson was at that too with the Red Bull with, the Red, with, with, yeah, Andy with a high performance team. Um, I don't know if he talked was, about that, but um, oh no, we didn't get with with Tim the other day. No, he was he was several margaritas deep. We were okay. not talking about. We were performance. talking about brain training. <laughs> well, Red Bull he, high was, he was he was talking about brain training also, just a different way. <laughs> well, we we did some really cool stuff with a small group of athletes and um, you know a bunch of physiologists and neurologists who normally work with Alzheimer patients, stroke patients, mm -hmm. and basically you know five or six Red Bull athletes as guinea pigs and trying to figure out um, the central governor and is it the mm -hmm. brain or the body that mm -hmm. quits first. And so we're multi-days wired up, um, getting brain some were getting brain stimulation, mm -hmm. some weren't, only the head neurologist knew, um, you know, tapping into a certain part mm -hmm. of your brain. Uh, and we're doing repetitive 4K time trials over, over, <sighs> over, over. Um, day after day and then we had what i called sleepy time where you'd have this 20 minute where they you know you sit there and they they're testing what's going on with your head and mm -hmm. seeing what's happening and really just trying to figure out um is it your brain or, or your body that quits first and the most interesting takeaway for me from that was on the very last day on the velodrome um we did our, our final 4k time trial and we did it alone and and they had a led light that was going around they said well the light will be going around just chase the light that's your fastest time for the week that you've had <laughs> and <laughs> so you, you probably can guess where this is going and so i'm doing the time trial doing the time trial and i'm ahead of the light and so i'm i'm motivated i'm psyched about that mm -hmm. then i fall behind the light and i have about you know a half a lap three quarters of a lap where i'm down on myself like oh i'm behind the light you know and then you know 
all this in 4Ks. And then a roller coaster of like, no, I'm going to try to catch it again. And, mm -hmm. you know, going through all of this. And I finished just a little bit behind the light. And I was disappointed, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I really wanted to catch the light. And, you know, then sure enough, um, they had tricked us yeah. and the light was faster yeah. than we'd ever gone. And so I had my best time on the, the last day of a multi-day camp where we were exhausted. And the big lesson for me is like, what if I hadn't kind of given up a little bit in that middle section? What if you didn't have that dark moment? What yeah. if I didn't have that? And can we keep, how do you keep your motivation high all the time? And it's really based on, I mean, it's why people, you know, we have an event like Private Idaho and people are like, well, I don't race. But you line up against other people who, and that collective energy, and all of a sudden your performance is elevated just because there's other people around you. Yeah. And that also makes it like, I think a lot of the, you know, if people go ride, you know, in ones and, you know, by themselves for their training for an event like this or with one other person or whatever, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's really tough to, you know, to, to get it out of your head, like, oh man, this is really hard and I'm on my own out here and I'm, you know, train, I got up so early and blah, blah, there's all this sort of self-talk and then you get out there and you're like, well, I've never ridden 95 miles on gravel before and, and, you know, all of those things going through your head, but there's 900 other people here, so it must be okay. I should yeah. just go for it. <laughs> like, like they're essentially, yes, there's a competitive sphere, but they're also just their presence is giving you permission to, yeah. to, 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 that it's okay that, yeah. you know, well, look, there's the person that, wait, what's this whole thing with the seattle crew coming from sea level and throwing yeah. down or people from florida and i'm just well you start to you know, believe like, it's wow. your brain again becomes engaged like yeah and and there's a beautiful view and the wind is blowing and there's sounds and i think the the mentally the strongest people are the people that can sit on an indoor trainer and actually get the quality workouts in i, I don't know you know who john stamstead is oh you know yeah that name oh yeah uh, apparently, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but it's like he knew he was ready for like some really big event when he could sit and stare at the wall and be, you know, 10 hours on his trainer with no visual stimulus. No, then he knew he was ready if, if you know, so that's, have you heard that story? Yeah, uh, something similar, not that one specifically, but there was um, kind of an anecdotal thing with somehow they're developing and it might, that's like three pairs of shorts. <laughs> easily <laughs> i was gonna say five okay <laughs> in fact not more because i think it's like every 90 minutes well the, after 90 out. minutes i quit but i think people that continue <laughs> they would go uh it might have had something to do with the lab that you guys were in because there, there's a few very well-known um psychologists and neuroscientists that are really trying to develop the central governor and trying to pin down what exactly it is and that one thing, that feedback and like tricking people into the thing. I mean, we use that trick all the time, like to give positive feedback or to give negative feedback to see how somebody issues a response and then, you know, develop training based off of that. Um, there's something really cool, though, with what you... The pre-fatiguing the brain stuff. Yeah. So yeah. there, when he says, for 10 hours, I'm staring at a wall, that's how I know I'm ready. Uh, when they when they try to get people to do this, so you know, pre-fatigue it with puzzles like monotonous, hit the button, mm -hmm. hit the button, hit the button, move the shape for like 90 minutes or something, and then allow them to go out and do exercise. And it is the equivalent of doing you know three hours of exercise because the brain is so over the repetitive questioning, which it seems like when you actually are riding a bike for hours on end is the same monotonous question asked over and over again. Should I keep going? Can I go faster? Okay, <laughs> should I go slower? Like, should I take, it's just the same thing. And so 
that's a, that's a 10 hours staring at a wall is a very good indicator of the monotony involved in training for these things. Like you need to reduce, it's almost like you need to reduce yourself down to its bare necessities in the brain. Cause that's what endurance I feel does to you. Like after long enough, there's nothing left of me. Like there's, <laughs> there's nothing like I, I'm just I mean, a pedal stroke. You still stroke. look like I'm you weigh about 190 today. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just a pedal stroke, the next pedal stroke, or I'm, it's just the next stride or whatever it is. And that monotony is where you ask really good questions. And, and Payson mentioned this the other day because I found a quote from him talking about, you know, I make, I have my most profound ideas and um, during long, hard rides. And I think that's true. Like, I think we've all experienced that to some point. I know point. it's true. Yeah. I know it's true. And authors talk about that happening. Like there's all sorts of cognitive disciplines that are totally related to endurance effort. And so where this whole brain thing is inter, intermixed somehow. And there's so many different ways to describe it. I don't even know where to start. And I don't think most scientists even know where to start. They know how to trick certain things out. Mm -hmm. And when they see that happen, it gives one pathway to maybe work that. And my question like to you is like, how would you actually define endurance like for with all the things that we've mentioned with the brain with the actual physical effort what is what is the meaning of endurance to you it's kind of distilling everything down to its purest form and you know can you see example when i go out on a bike ride the first 20 minutes is like oh i'm tired oh i should be working i should be doing this there's chatter mm -hmm. in my head and oh i'm my legs are tired and and eventually you get to this sort of vision quest place where all the noise stops and to me it's a it's a meditative state mm -hmm. and it you where you're no longer you know time and space and all mm -hmm. that seem to be less important you're not staring at a garment you you really are i don't know how else to compare it other than it's like a meditation for me yeah. it's moving meditation and I've been doing that for years and didn't really realize, you know, until I started doing a couple years ago, still meditation mm -hmm. and just sitting there for 10 minutes and, or, you know, and, and losing track of time mm -hmm. and stop thinking, oh, I'm supposed to be meditating. I'm not supposed to be thinking about anything else. Oh, but now I'm supposed to be thinking about not thinking about anything else. Which technically and, is still thinking about. Uh, right. And then, but, <laughs> and that happens on long endurance mm -hmm. events too, but then eventually, um, I think, I believe that there's something in the body, the physiology that clicks the brain into that meditative state mm -hmm. where you truly are, you are really just riding your bike and you're not thinking about it. Something that's really interesting that has happened to me in 24 hour racing when I was doing a lot of that. And that was early in my cycling career. So I was a lousy technical rider mm -hmm. and I pre-ride the course, you know, cry, scream, throw my bike. I can't ride this section. I'm going to have to run it. What am I doing? I should find another sport. Um, sure enough, you know, three quarters of the way through the race, usually in the middle of the night, all those technical sections, because I was just so tired, mm. I'd ride them just fine. And there was not the distraction of, I think just the pinpoint focus of being at night was mm -hmm. one part of it. I've only seeing in your headlamp. Chasing the little white ball. Yeah, yeah, but then also I was so tired of, you know, after 12, 15, yeah. 16 hours of riding that I couldn't fight myself anymore. So instead of getting in my Fly. way yeah. of, oh, I can't get around that rock, you're finally just, I don't care. And eventually, and you flow through it. And so for me, that is endurance. When you get out of your way, mentally get out of your way, and physically your body really then does perform at its best. 
That's uh, that's it's, really it's something um, that we t- at least you know from from my side we talked about the what would happen in the mountains the same kind of thing that that for me it would take going all the way to being really exhausted to then be able to flow finally mm-hmm. or to stop the you know conversation in my head to um get, to get out of my own way and i would i you know always said that you know exhaustion gets rid of prejudice you know or preconceived <laughs> ideas or expectations yeah. or you know and 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 i could never get there with the don't think about anything while you're sitting there on the you know we share right. that. I mean, yeah, I, I have I to should. strip away the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the Go Find My Dad, the place where he was shot down. People are like, well, why didn't you just go? You had the map coordinates. Why didn't you just go there? No, because I needed. you needed to be in a certain condition when you got there. Right. I needed, you know, 800 miles to basically strip away all of my prejudice, all of my whatever it was, um, to be open to receive what was going to be there for me at that place. Yeah. And I, I had to physically strip away those barriers to be emotionally open. And it was a, a very great, a, amazing learning experience. But it was like, of course, I have to ride there. Because mm-hmm. like you, I don't know how else to get rid of that noise without physically flogging myself. I, I feel <laughs> complete, every time this this aspect of the, of the conversation comes up, I feel so horribly unevolved <laughs> that, I can, that I can't get there without, oh, fuck, is this going to take some time i guess to like i need i need to have this experience you know maybe today and now i gotta figure out how to go have it because i but i think so few people go that deep you know and it's probably why people look at you as the king of pain and me as the queen of pain people aren't willing to go there and it's nothing new you look at it uh, you know native american vision quest you know or any sort of deprivation or the buddhist you know you strip away some of those things physically so that you can get to a different emotional place and not a lot of people are willing to go there that's kind of what i see like when i mentioned before like long effort especially like when i get into the three or four hour mark which i've tried not to do because i hate it but it seems like maybe you don't want to know what's on the other side of that i'm okay like i'm pretty good inside my own head and endurance doesn't like the long efforts are a very good way of illuminating how comfortable i am inside of my own head but also the frustration i have with myself and that's that's when i was talking about reducing yourself down to nothing um that's kind of like what i try to get rid of and what i think of endurance when i think of like its utility is to finally get rid of that false sense of control like you you mentioned it just fractionally on like oh god like i'm over trying to control this like hard technical writing i'm just gonna let my body do it and your body knows like your subconscious brain knows how to fire things and that we we find that anecdotally in a controlled training environment that a lot of people with technical lifting or technical exercises they have too much input on it they're trying to control everything and a lot of it is like yeah cue the right positions let your body learn where it's supposed to be get really, really tired and come back to it and it almost mm-hmm. locks into place and you do it almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. And that is a corollary to if I get rid of this false sense of control that I have um, over my whole life, bike riding brings that out. Like in the middle of a very long ride, whether it's a training ride and I'm you know underfueled, underprepared, out in the middle of the nowhere and now I have to make it back home, oh, like I, I have no control. Yeah, there's always Uber. 
But are you really going <laughs> to... Unless you're in Ketchum, yeah, right? Unless, yeah. you're in, unless you're in your race. Um, I did not check for a signal. <laughs> it's not there. It's <laughs> yeah. close. And yeah, I would probably only have to hitch a ride in the back of like a horse a horse carriage of some sort or whatever is back there. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that Rebecca would have had deals with everybody to who has no. ranches out there. Like, hey, if someone's <laughs> got a bike and they're sticking their thumb out, ask them if they're okay, if they're injured. <laughs> yeah. And if they're not injured... Unless they can physically produce on. the broken bone or... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have de- there have been times I've wanted to quit races and I've actually thought about, well, if, if I break my pinky or if I like oh. that, like what would be a significant enough injury that isn't going to hold me up, but that people wouldn't like get the, down on me for get quitting. Excuse, yeah, I'd get, get excused yeah. and I could quit. I'd have a good excuse to quit. And I never really came up. I was never able to like hurt myself in that way, but it goes through your head of like wanting to quit. And you know, <laughs> we had all a, the time. We had kind of a, a fun, one of the first races I did with Mark was out on Antelope Island in, in, in Utah, a little 50 mile road race or something. And the weather was, it was spring, so spring racing is temperamental. And everybody was unprepared because a snowstorm came in after a rainstorm. And so it was wet, then cold, then like freezing. And there was this really funny moment when uh, my hands were frozen, I couldn't shift, so I missed the break. And then I was just like pedaling by myself in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, so cold, if I just like lay down on the ground and skid and crash and all this stuff happens an ambulance will pull up and i'll be warm within like five minutes it's like the most delusional thing and you're like that's fine like what am i gonna like you know scrape up my ankle that won't stop me from training later it was just like why is this even a that's totally irrational you're willing to trade one physical pain for like the physical pain, a different kind of a physical chronic pain. for an acute yeah. Yeah. stop. As long as I can get this to stop, <laughs> and even finishing the line yesterday, like through the Red Bull banner or whatever, it's like there's still like three fucking miles to pedal. Like you son of a bitch. Like I did not want to do welcome. that. I, I didn't want to do that. Was the worst part of it. it was really? Like, yeah, that was literally <laughs> the worst part. It was just like. Oh my God, I had the sense of relief when I saw the thing and then the expectations to continue staying on this bike. It's like, damn, this whole thing. I, I literally was like, I just pull over, Aaron will come get me. I'll just like, you know, sit on the side of the road. And then I was like, I'm almost, like, it makes no difference. Like the time is the same. It's just, I'm so fed up with this thing that I'm doing. Like my legs don't work, That like I can barely, but it's no difference. Did dip. you feel that way at the race yesterday? No, he had a positive result. He's... <laughs> I was just, it was my experience after passing under the, the Red Bull arch at the end, um, I was like, well, it's, I'm just going to charge as hard as I fucking can to get, like, I'm going to, I need to go find Selena. I need to like. You still charged get, to the last uh, section. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I, I hope you stopped at the stoplight though. I did okay, actually. <laughs> if um, it was, if it I, was red. It, yeah. Yes, it was red. And I rolled up on some guy and I, but, and I was like watching the light cause you know, I ride in the city a lot and I'm like, ah, oh, it's yellow. I don't know. I'm even gonna have to put a foot down. I just need to kind of go slow and then <laughs> kept nice. going. Um, yeah, my, your name was on my number plate. I wasn't going to run a red light in your town. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> I do that at home, but, <laughs> but, I th- but, um, I was hoping for the red light. There was I wanted to stop. I wanted to just no, get you, a break. You've been for seeing a like the warning light on your Garmin <laughs> yeah, 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 for the yeah, yeah. previous three hours. <laughs> I, it, yeah, yesterday was um, I that that conversation. I didn't. I I had many, many, many quit don't quit negotiations. Really during the day yesterday. Yeah, 
And what, yeah. why and, didn't you quit? Um, because every time I was about to, like it was, so I got dropped by the, the, the group that I'd, you know, we had charged so hard to catch with Matthew helping and Mike Hone, uh, a guy from Bellevue actually. Um, and that guy has an amazing engine, but I think he, I, I think he just put nitro in and went all the way to uh, the first right-hand turn and then somehow put water in the gas tank at the, mm. at the aid station or something. <laughs> yeah. But that was so fast. And I finally got on with this group and then whatever, six or seven miles later got, and there was my general classification guys, a couple that I'd recognized mm-hmm. from before and sort of where they were around me. Um. And I, so I was in that group and then my stomach was giving me a little trouble and I got popped off the back of that group. I was just like, oh man. Mm. So that was right, right at the start of Copper Basin, like mile 37 or whatever. And uh, at least I think. Anyway. Um, and then I was, you know, kept looking behind, hoping to get caught, but not wanting to get caught. <laughs> But then thinking like what about what Payson had said in the podcast the day before when at Leadville he got passed by the current world champion and he's like, oh, it's okay. Uh, fourth is fine. I'm, you know, uh, you know, it's going to, it's a fine excuse um, because I only got beat by the world champion. Huh? Yeah. It's like that conversation in his head, but then he just said, I kept, I was cramping really bad, but I just kept pushing, kept pushing, kept pushing. And be, because I, I still could. Yeah. Like, even though, no matter how painful it was, he could still keep pushing. And then eventually he sees the rainbow jersey up ahead. And then he's like, Shit. Now I have to go catch that guy. Now I have to go catch and see what happens. Now I have to go see what happens, you know, now. And so every time, you know, I'd start slowing down a little bit. And I was like, it's fine. Just just, uh, get back to the finish. It'll be, you know. Um, Because that's what you ultimately came up here to do was to try and finish the race. And, um, if it'd been easy to bail out, like if you could have called. No, I'd never DNF. Yeah. If I cross, if I cross the start yeah. line, yeah. I will feel like however yeah. long it takes, whatever that like has been a, a thing. And I, it was funny to see Dave Harward up here because the last time I saw him actually racing was at like Garden City or something, somewhere down near Pocatello area. And we got there and it was like, it was snowing on the start line mm-hmm. and I had driven whatever, two and a half hours from Salt Lake. And I just like got up there and I'm like, I've had two hypothermia events this season already dude i'm getting in my car and he goes i gotta race i love this so much and then see him up here again yesterday it was, it was super cool but um but but the the and once i rode back on so i got popped at mile 37 then like mile 48 or 49 i rode my way back onto that group by not quitting mm-hmm. but again so somehow they got slowed down somewhere along the yeah. way they let something happened that allowed me to one guy to catch back on to eight or whatever it was. And, and, but then the unfortunate thing was I was back on. Yeah. So you had to stay on. <laughs> and that was when it was like, if I'm just in, on the road by myself and having that conversation in my own head, I'm okay with that. But cause I can dictate the pace like, okay, I'm not going to quit, but I am going to back it off, you know, so that my heart rate is something that I believe somehow that I can, you know, whatever it is. But all the way back to that last climb, I'm, I'm with that that group, and I'm like, get on the front, and then I go rotate back to the back, and then I'm somebody who gets on the front, and they're like, amp ramp up the pace like two miles an hour more, or something. I'm like, oh, fuck. 
okay, they're way stronger than I am right now. Jesus, I should just let them go because there's no way this is going to, you know. And then, like, I'd push on the pedals. I'm like, fuck, my legs still work. <laughs> like, the good news is my legs still work. The bad news is my legs still work. And so I kept having to. Um, there, we mentioned, we were talking last night with uh, Payson and Tim at dinner about, like, that, the value of, like, that group that you get into and showing you what you're actually capable because there's some like that social pressure like i'm in a pace line i feel like if i miss this train this is going to take me way longer Mm -hmm. so there's enough there's enough self-serving purpose to be there and okay it's my turn i'm going to pull you know give my best effort come back try to recover but eventually that conversation becomes these guys don't need me like they can go way fast everybody's doing the same thing everybody feels insufficient or insignificant in in moving this thing forward but nobody will back down so the pace stays pretty damn Mm. high comparatively um and that's how i feel like training i I wish more training did that and i think that's some of the success that crossfit has had because it's a very similar feeling like i'm doing this really hard workout whatever the the thing is and i want to just slow down but i look and like becky from soccer practice isn't slowing down well fuck i can't like let her go and the same thing happens like that guy is not going to stop so why should i stop so it drags us way harder and makes us go way further than we ever could and that's kind of the the i have this thing why bike racing represents to me a really cool aspect of humanity which is you are an individual you're responsible and accountable for your own actions you need to put your shoes on and line up you have to pedal your own bike the, old, the, the whole time. But you are reliant on others. Like you need others, but in a way that each person is responsible as an individual. And that You actually need to give of yourself to others. Like when you go on the front, you're actually, look, I am participating in the, you know, a successful outcome for this group, mm-hmm. which sometimes in training we don't, we, we aren't put in that same situation. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an aspect of road racing that was really different because I come from, you know, mm-hmm. more mountain bike racing or kind of personal kind of, you know, you're out there going, like you said, going your pace, the mm-hmm. pace that you know that you can maintain. It was something I dabbled in road racing for a while. And, and actually, there were parts of it I really didn't like. Um, I didn't like that when the gun goes off, the race really didn't start for <laughs> right. maybe 20 miles, right. you know, because everyone's yeah. just soft pedaling mm-hmm. and chatting and doing whatever. I'm like, didn't the race start like an hour ago? And they're still like I, finicking with stuff. Yeah, and, and and I'm just like, I'm used to, you say go and, and you go as hard as you can until the end. And so this whole like cat and mouse game of that was totally foreign to me. And it is interesting because you, you can give of yourself and the, the group can be stronger together. And that's how adventure racing was. But like wasting that first half of the race doing nothing was really strange for me. Yeah, I could imagine that. I was a <laughs> terrible road racer. Yeah, I was. I was I, good time trial because I understand uh, that concept. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, you, well, you I wasn't yeah. good, but it was much more. I could Did understand it. You can Mental, get aligned with you mentally. Go as hard as you can, yeah. and you know the fastest person wins. There are some benefits. I, I I'll always love road racing, but I, I'm the first to acknowledge the really downsides of it. And this is something that I really appreciated about what you organized, and maybe. Maybe what gravel racing is seems like a very open sport. Like it's very accommodating and it's very welcoming to some people, uh, to most people. Road racing is not. Like road racing is very clicky. It's very 
elitist in a weird way, no matter what category you're in, you can be a cat four and you're still somehow elitist about who comes into your group and rides with you. But there, there's let me something, those fives in here, man. <laughs> there's something really good about like, there wasn't one person that, you know, passed me that didn't, you know, Hey, are you okay? Like everything going okay. Like hop on if you can. That there, there was like an acknowledgement, even from the guy, there was a guy, bigger guy that was on a single speed who I passed on the climb going up and then I saw him on the climb coming back and he was passing me. And I was like, what a hard motherfucker. Yeah. Like on a single speed. Yeah. And his first concern was like, hey, do you need anything? And I was like, me, like you're on one gear. Like Maybe you looked that bad that everybody had to keep up. I looked pretty bad. <laughs> I was in rough shape. Are you sure you're okay? Are you sure you're okay? <laughs> looked pretty bad. But there, there was this accommodation in roadside. I mean, I fell off a time trial bike and shattered my elbow, and it took an hour for somebody to like be like, hey, on the way back, do you need an ambulance? Or like what the deal was. You're just writhing by the side of the road as people are going past? Oh, yeah. I was just on the side holding my elbow waiting for somebody to... I didn't have a phone, so I was just waiting. <laughs> I do feel like gravel, it's really cool. It's the biggest, one of the biggest growing segments mm-hmm. of cycling. They're, you know, developing equipment for it now. And I, and it, people were like, why didn't you start a mountain bike event? Why did you start a gravel event? You're a mountain biker. And it is exactly that reason that you said it, it, it does welcome everyone, whether you're a roadie, a mountain biker, new, um, elite racer, it's kind of a, a meeting place for all of those things, but which that's partially, I love. That is partially your responsibility. What do you like, mean? Like you are responsible for, for for that. Like you are right now helping to develop. It's like a wide open thing. Mm-hmm. And by having started this event, you know, before gravel racing started um, <laughs> and sort of seen into that future. And then just with the um, the attitude that you bring to it, everything about you that I'm going to start crying. So why? Because <laughs> it's so fucking cool. Yeah. Thank you. Like. Like you had this, you know, whether you know it or not, there was like, there was some, even if it was an unconscious vision about it, but like to have had the adventure race experience and a little bit of time on the road and a little bit of time mountain biking and that kind of thing. And just realize like, wow, we can, there is a, a, a sub-discipline within cycling that can be more, um, accessible to everyone if we just fucking make it. And, and, you know, we've talked about this a lot, like with Brian Harder, who used to race with Matthew. Um, I know Brian. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we had a really, well, one of our early episodes, we had this really f- fucking <laughs> snarky conversation about how hard it is like to become a road racer and yeah. that sort of thing. And so it's, that's not super accessible and road racing and certainly in North America is dying um, as a sport. And then the, and, and even though mountain biking you know, maybe seems a bit more free and a bit more accommodating, it's fucking hard. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the barrier to entry there, I think, is A, the fitness requirements of it, but then B, you got to learn how to drive Skill. your bike, you know. And, and, and when yeah. you wreck, um, like a lot of people have told me in the, in the past, like, I'd ra- much rather go down on my mountain bike than on the road. And I'm like, oh, no. There's no <laughs> like tree a, stumps that I can like, <laughs> land on and break my back on a like on Go road. tomahawking into yeah. the forest or whatever. And, um, <laughs> and, and so with this, there's, it, there is, uh, uh, as you've noticed, um, there are technical aspects to it. Yeah. that could, could be limiting but for the most part it's just like okay you get to go 
ride on roads where there is less traffic. Mm -hmm. There are some things about like, yeah, you kind of need to be a little comfortable when the tires stop gripping the surface and Mm -hmm. you slide a little bit and you got to know what to do and figure out, you know, what appropriate speeds going into these corners might be. But for the most part, it's like it, I was shocked at the huge range of ability, somatotype, Mm-hmm. whatever yeah. that turned up yesterday it was absolutely amazing and thank you yeah, i mean that was the goal it is was to welcome a lot of different people and you know put them all together in the mm-hmm. same playing ground like you said i mean cycling is one of the few sports where where you can you know do the same course as your heroes mm-hmm. and you know a, a total beginner could do yeah. the course yesterday uh, you know alongside tim johnson or me or, or whoever mm-hmm. And everyone can everyone can go out and do it. So the inclusion was a big part of it because I've I felt excluded when I you know did a little bit of road racing and I'm coming yeah. in as a pro athlete, pro mountain biker, and I came in had start as a cat four, you know, and did a race. And I even got like it was sea otter was my first race, and it, it was really <laughs> fun. But people and then people were mad at me Laguna for Saint entering Earth. in cat four because I had an engine yeah but i'm like well these are the rules i have to yeah. do this I have one. To finish. yeah it's yeah. they're your rules you guys <laughs> don't be mad well and people are like well why and i just went off the front and like just yeah. that's not how Time you're trials. supposed to do it yeah. but i was having fun doing it sure. <laughs> so but i got i got i got like ridicule for well, that we mentioned i mentioned this yesterday because it was and i took part in the same kind of ridiculous hierarchy that was non-existent we had this kid who well, I'd watched him because he he posted in a, in in a cat as a cat five in a time trial. He beat like us cat threes by like two minutes, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> and then like a month later, he was a cat four, and then a month later, he was a cat three, mm-hmm. and then we raced a couple races, and he was just a phenom, like absolutely blew the doors off of everybody. I'm like, "Where did this kid come from?" Well, it turns out he he was a bike messenger in San Francisco for six years. Mm-hmm. Like he'd been. <laughs> riding some of the hardest terrain possible on a fixed gear, oh, devel- so, yeah. <laughs> developing leg strength and endurance, like, I mean, cadence ability. Yeah. Of course he's going to blow people out of the yeah. way. Before his first year of cycling was up, of competitive cycling, he was, he made it onto the Bissell squad. And I was That's like, cool. awesome, good for that guy. Everybody around me was like, fuck that guy. Why? Because he did what they couldn't do. Like, right. they've been cat threes for four years. I mean, I like that about gravel. Anyone could yeah. show up and win the race yesterday. Anyone who wanted to come. And, you know, we had mountain bikers, roadies, whatever. And it's a, it's a, it starts as an equal playing field. Yeah. And go as fast as you can, and yeah. the best man or woman wins. Yeah. The worst, one of the worst aspects yesterday was, you know, pedaling, you know, whatever group I was in. And I could <clears throat> see the dust plume of the front group and how far ahead they oh, were. Yeah. Like, oh, they're out, like, you start out of that copper basin thing, and like, my God, they're fucking going okay. so fast. It, the, it was a really good race at the front end. It was uh, super exciting. The women's race, especially because it changed hands a few yeah. times, and, you know, uh, there were definitely some people who didn't enter the stage race because they wanted to save themselves for yeah. the big potato one day, but it ended up the two mountain bikers who had also done the stage race were one-two in a sprint, a sprint finish. Yeah. Like down but, to two seconds. It yeah. was really exciting. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that's Absolutely. That must have been, I would have loved to see the, uh, the the dirt part of the descent from Trail Creek. 
that would have been great too. Well, the Joe who's on the motorcycle got um, some cool video of seeing, nice. you know, trailing behind them. And so if in the next few days you receive any complaints or concerns <laughs> about this guy sort of screaming at himself out loud to pedal faster, keep pushing, going down that hill. Um, going down the hill, you're trying to go faster. Oh, yeah. Because I'd finally dropped those GC guys. Is descending not your your strong point? Oh, I descended like a crazy person yesterday. No, I descended. I actually descended really well yesterday, and like took more time. But I was literally shouting at myself at times, and then I was like, "Sorry, you know," like because I'd pass someone, and I'm just like cursing at myself because I don't. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I hope not. Do you feel like saying out loud is is stronger than just saying it in your brain? Is there something about I, forming it worked the words? at the time. Yeah, like, I would cause, say yes. Because I because I came over the top. There was this um, guy, another guy from Colorado Springs, had been in the group, and and uh, he had stopped to grab a Red Bull at the top of that climb before the descent. And I was like, "Dude, come on, we got these guys," you know, and and then whatever. And and I was just like, at that point, I was kind of like, I still have enough in my legs to be able to push i need to not be scared here mm-hmm. i know that rebecca said something about like take it easy on the descent <laughs> but that was not... i took it easy i took your advice as long as you stay right there's just some blind corners you know yeah and, and a beautiful view sometimes yeah. i have trouble i do that's my that hill is a pretty regular hill climbing I imagine. Uh, yeah. you know training ground for me and it's yeah. cool because i used to only be the one on that hill and now i see people training on that hill all the time that's a great climb like that is such a good climb i mean and i'm obviously this felt climber body but i really enjoyed it just because of a how it's graded the the you can see where you're making progress and i Mm -hmm. think that's what well a i think that is part of training in general you have to in the meta version of your training, you have to make sure you're making progress. But in the individual like minute that you're training, you have to make progress. And if you can see it out in front of you, like that hill, that corner, that bend, it really helps. You mentioned something really interesting about um, saying it out loud. And I never, I think this is true, of vocalizing something versus thinking of it. Because one thing that we have to kind of teach people is they are not their thoughts. Like the thoughts that come through your head are all over the place. And if we were all, <laughs> we'll face it, we'd all be psychotic if if we were the people that we thought we were, if we took into account all the random things that we're thinking at all times. But if we vocalize something, there's something about it making Angers. an idea concrete. Mm-hmm. And I didn't notice until we did some uh, handgun training with this guy, Jason, from Pennsylvania, who is an amazing instructor. And we went over, I mean, we only shot maybe 20 rounds that day, but we did four hours of just theory and thinking about things and how to approach, you know, certain obstacles. And he did something really cool when he, when we got in the range and went hot, he took out his gun, uh, checked it, put it back in. He goes, the gun is live or whatever, whatever wording. He said it out loud, like, and he made sure to like, hey, when, when you do this and you say it out loud, there's no confusion as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. You've just made a vocal known. I think no matter what you apply that to, because I've had events and races that I've been in where it was like, I need to hurt myself and I need to say that out loud so that it's okay to hurt myself. Like it's okay to go into a place where I compromise health and everything else because it's worth pushing into trying to win. Um, and if I just had that thought, it wouldn't work. And so I kind of have to like, 
accept it and say it out loud, which I might sound like a fucking ridiculous person. Like, <laughs> oh, he's being a little bit dramatic. Come on. <laughs> but it really does help assert that, like, it's okay. Like, you're going to hurt yourself and you're not going to regret it. It's worth it. And if you are doing it in the moment in a race, that's fantastic. Like, yeah. the more people, I guess, could vocalize it, I think the better off we'd be because we'd be more determined. We'd have to... You're then having to live up to the actions that you vocalized. That's I mean, hard maybe to do. it's almost like, you know, saying your wedding vows where yeah. people, Greg and I have been together 10 years and we've only been married a couple of years and people are like, oh, it's different. I'm like, it's not any different. And no. I, But standing in front of people and vocalizing something, it gives more credence to it. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe it's kind of like that. It could be. could be a commitment yeah. to an idea. Yeah, and you say it out loud, yeah. like, come on, Mark, or whatever you said yeah. to yourself. It, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they weren't it, 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 as nice as that. But not not, not as nice as that. But <laughs> as positive as we get sometimes. <laughs> I think, come on, God damn it, was yeah. the entry level yeah. and then it escalated from there <laughs> i do a lot of talk with women especially i we i mean we talk about you know the voice in your head and and you know how most of us are, are pretty hard on ourselves of like you suck and why are mm -hmm. you riding this and me included you mm -hmm. know and i sort of when i teach women's groups or teach people i challenge them you know if i were riding with you would i say the same words to you that i'm saying to myself if you were riding like me would i say mark you really suck why aren't you riding that you should find another sport like <laughs> would you say that out loud to another person to a friend no but if you said that to me when we were riding together it I would, would be motivate like, well, you okay <laughs> I guess she's, she knows best. I mean, I like especially we're talking about bike. That's I know you would. Yeah, I would exactly. never. But we will say to ourselves the things that we would never even no. consider saying to somebody else, and that's it's pretty bad to treat our own self in that way. That kind of negative talk in your yeah. head. That's wow. a that's a cool thing to actually recognize because I like it's all, there's nothing. We're we're very big believers on like being honest about a circumstance like mm -hmm. personal accountability and honesty are a really good thing but that turns really quickly into an unfair negative aspect right. about what you are right. you're just extrapolating all the bad points and we know that people perform better with a little bit of positive right. feedback like right. the, the tiniest of bit every once in a while negative so that you can go on the right path mm -hmm. or whatever but for the most part like in a bad situation, the best coach will give something that is just a little bit positive to yeah. break. It, nothing unrealistic. Like, you're the champ when you're in right. last place. But something like, look, you've made it this far. Like, make it to this next section. Break yeah. it down and reduce this to what I know you can do. And that belief in somebody else, it garners everything. Mm -hmm. Like, there's times when, like, um, you know, Mark isn't the biggest on... I don't, on compliments mm -hmm. but i'll hear one from him and it's like oh holy shit he's paying attention and like he does notice things and that's enough energy to continue to do what like that's enough that gives me enough energy to finish whatever i was doing or to like continue to look at what i was doing in a better way or whatever the thing but if is. he's not there are you able to to find that in your own voice that, yeah i have to yeah uh, it's just not as strong yeah. but if i was able to be that powerful of a person for myself then, then I'd be way better, but I'm not. I'm just down to like I think I'm okay at stuff, and I, you know, if I try hard, I can accomplish something. But if somebody else believed in me, and then I would learn to believe in myself, I would be way better. Mm -hmm. It's just how humans are, I think. Yeah. It's funny. Kingry sent me a text on the morning of stage one. Mm. You're just like, if you just believe in yourself as much as you believe in me, you'll destroy. 
Don't, don't try it's to true. <laughs> so I just came back from, uh, I recorded a really fun podcast with him. He did this nightmare tour, which is basically you ride the perimeter of, I think, Lancaster County in Pennsylvania. And it's 225 miles and 20,000 plus feet of climbing. And um, at, at some point earlier in the year, he told me he wanted to do it. And I was just like, dude, I will come crew for you, whatever. And so um, I flew back there and, and like, and, and it was just, it, <coughs> And he's done enough. So we've done Everest Challenge together, Tour Park City, Logan and Jackson, some stuff like that. But I've never seen him when he's gone truly into one of his, mm-hmm. like when he did Four Horsemen, he won it like 18 hours and 47 minutes or something like on, you know, he said, I think he dropped second place at 70 miles. So then he rode like a fucking 180 mile TT or whatever the thing was. And I've never been able to actually witness that. And yeah. I got to be in the car and just watch the whole thing go down. It was so fucking cool. And we recorded this podcast. But it, just like, dude, you, every point, you know, I totally believe in that guy's ability to do something. And and I think we are, you know, we, we have spoken a lot and we incorporate in our training this idea that you will never outperform your self-image. And it's the hardest thing to change. And sometimes we need these catalyst experiences to overcome that thing. It's the four minute mile example, you know, but on an individual basis. And, um, and so all of that negative self-talk is only like suppressing whatever, you know, higher self-image you might ultimately be able to Right. you know, gain and, 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 and perform at an equal level to. Well, it's like your power meter. Is it limiting mm-hmm. you by, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I, I shouldn't be going above this heart rate or. Because what know, if I, it's wrong? Yeah, what if it's wrong? I mean, I, I will say, though, Will Gadd has, has I, uh, heard him give a speech. Uh, you probably know who Will is. Oh, yes. Um, another guy. <laughs> uh, you probably, have you climbed with him? You oh, probably, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think, he, I think I might be responsible for taking him on his first mixed climb oh that's cool yeah i think we did we did fields chimney i think that was the very or something on the uh yeah i think it was fields um or, or something on, on on the on the uh up on the diamond and then it was like a catapult and he just went off well he's another one he's, like he's you amazing i've admired amazing. for a long time he's also a really smart guy and he gave a yeah. speech for red bull one time and he to a bunch of a bunch of Red Bull athletes, and he talked about the power of negative thinking. So mm-hmm. kind of opposite of what we're talking about, but mm-hmm. you know, the way I take that is when I'm training, I'm training for Leadville. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, on my session, I should be doing more. These other people are better than me. They're stronger than me. They have bigger VO2 max, da, da, da. and it makes me work harder. Yes. So there's that positive yeah. aspect of thinking you're not good enough, and so therefore I'm going to work a little harder. On the flip side, that really negative voice, like riding down technical, I suck, I can't do it. And that's not the power of negative. Th- that's the negative thinking going the other that's direction. The d- disempowerment exactly. by way of negative thinking. Right. And so it's like there's kind of two, it's a very fine line in between mm-hmm. those things. And But it really hit when, when um, he said that, the power of negative thinking. I'm like, yeah, I, I think the best athletes don't think they're amazing. And that was kind of what I took from him. The best athletes think they could always be doing a little more. They're not quite there yet. They should prepare a little more. And the arrogant people I know, you know, they might be 
flash in the pan. They might be those people, like you said, that are physically really gifted mm -hmm. and they have some performance, but they're really long-term athletes like Will, like you, those people probably don't think that they're the best of the best of the best. I know they don't. I, you're absolutely right about that. And I think that um, they're, that's, I'm, I'm glad that Will gave that speech. I think the sort of the first time I'd ever seen anything like that, there was a, uh, if you remember Jim Carn mm -hmm. from back in the days, there was what I think one of the original um, profile of him in Climbing Magazine was called The Positive Aspects of Negative Thinking, mm -hmm. which is actually a bad religion song, but um, but it, it has just been this thing. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, in as soon as I saw it in, I mean, it's like how, uh, why I am now who who I am or where I am, whatever. It's just that I, I was able to use the negative thinking for it, it, uh, the right purpose at the right time. As a motivational tool mm -hmm. instead of a detriment, yeah. you know? And, you know, but maybe um, a bit too much on the det detrimental side mm. in the sense that, you know, what could I have done had I not... Mm you know, had a bit more weight on this side of the scale in terms of that. And then when, and um, to tie that to the king of pain, queen of pain thing, uh, what I think the guy was getting at. How did, yeah, when, you have to say, I don't know how you got that nickname. Um, so it was, I, I think it was a journalist named Craig Vetter who wrote yeah. that uh, article. Um, and uh, it had more to do with, you know, the, the the mental the, the the angst that I was still you know the whatever I just carried teenage angst into my twenties <laughs> or, or 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 whatever I'm, I'm working on going into my forties yeah. with it we're talking about. <laughs> but like it was for me the climbing was a way to express I mean I wasn't I mean I'm not a person who's known to have a you know generally positive attitude although. You might think differently after seeing me laying in the grass and hanging out at the end, you know, yeah, you for the pretty, entire like fucking afternoon at the end of the race. The sun. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. That's the whole new me and, uh, or something. <laughs> but, but at that time, I mean, I was just, I was, you know, depressed to whatever, you know, climbing was my way of, you know, proving it to the world that I wasn't a piece of shit or proving to my dad that I was going to be able to make it, you know, doing all the things that he said that I couldn't or what, you know, all that, that, that sort of thing. But my pain was like, yeah, I could go do these things in the mountains by myself or for long periods of time, but that was driven by this internal, you know, sort of psychological issues that had nothing to do with the physical expression part of it. Like I'm, uh, you know, I only learned to hurt myself physically because I could do so inc with incredible efficiency <laughs> psychologically mm -hmm. um, or I would, would, you know, sort of experienced um, that thing. And so when I first saw that uh, and I knew um, Karn were, were uh, different age, but, you know, he was active in the that sport climbing community when Scott Franklin was um, involved and Craig Smith was coming over from the UK and, uh, I mean, the whole Smith Rock sort of crew, I guess, was where that kind of coalesced. But um, uh, it seeing seeing that put in print, I'm just like, oh yeah, there is there is you know everything that I've done does has already should have proven to me that there was a benefit to sort mm -hmm. of using this 
um, psychological manipulation, if you will, um, on oneself. Uh, but I needed to see it in someone else to kind of get, yeah. have it affirmed. And then after that, I was like, well, that's not only affirmed, but it has given me permission. I'm like, I'm going to continue down this road. Cause I, well, we there need is no examples. Other we need mentor. We need people to say, yeah, what, that you're not that unique that you, yes. you know, you're not that different. You're not that weird, mm-hmm. you know? Like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, having an example of, oh, we're all just kind of normal and we all do actually experience very similar emotions, mm-hmm. you know, ups and downs. It, we we really aren't that unique. And that gives you, actually kind of gives you hope and strength and, you know. To think that I might be comfortable in my own skin someday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this brings t- kind of to something that's very like, a very serendipitous experience for you in the Blood Road documentary. To find the similarities, and as a recap for people who haven't seen it, you're on a quest to find your father's plane crash, essentially. It's on the um, uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail in Vietnam. You have a partner that goes with you that you had not met previously, is that correct? Um, And to see like the absolute connection from totally polar cultures and to see that whole thing coalesce on this singular effort was not just profound i think i mean it, it actually gives me like chills to think about that experience you went through do you want to like talk about a little bit about that yeah i mean the the riding the ho chi minh trail blood road um it was it really was the culmination of everything i've done from adventure racing expedition bike combined and and i do believe my whole circuitous sports career was was really my dad was bringing me there to that spot and i needed I needed all of the experience that I had in navigation, mm-hmm. expedition planning, going long distance, cycling, you know, to be able to put together something like that. And, um, you know, the, the biggest, most important sport sporting thing I've done in my life, but it was, it was a lot deeper than that to, to ride. Yeah. I don't think anyone, no one's ridden the Ho Chi Minh trail or pieced it together in that way. And we did, um, 1200 miles from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh city and, yeah, looking for a map coordinate. And my dad was shot down when I was three. So I never knew him. I grew up um, I grew up without a dad, but not knowing that anything was missing until, you know, well into my 40s. And let's go see what's there. And it was really cool how my chosen career actually brought me to that place. You know, if it wasn't a cyclist, if I hadn't found cycling, if I hadn't found adventure racing, all that wouldn't have led me there. And I didn't set out to make a movie. I wanted to do the bike expedition and I went, but it was so logistically challenging. I went to Red Bull and asked for help. And was like, I have this idea. I want to do this thing. Can you help me? I mean, just getting the the permission to cross those borders and go those places and doing the research. And they started hearing more and more of the story and like, maybe we should try to document this. It was going to be a 20 minute, you know, short piece and ended up becoming a feature length film just because of the depth of the story. And part of the creative process, which was really challenging for me of letting go, is that I didn't get to choose my teammate. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to know, control everything that was happening. I mean, normally you'd go on a big expedition, you know all the maps, yeah. you know who you're taking, you choose mm-hmm. your team, it's all laid out. But because it is a film and they wanted my authentic reactions, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of things were kept from me. And that was the deal I had to make. If I wanted to do this project, I had to let go of bringing my own teammate sure. and and let the creative director be like well okay i'm just gonna go for it and and 
in the back of my head, I was, you know, Huen, who ended up being one of the best parts of the journey. She, you know, she was a, 10 years ago, was a, a, an elite cross-country racer in Vietnam. Yeah. So, you know, won, won a lot of races there, the most decorated Vietnamese cyclist, but the level is way different. And her longest races were an hour and a half. Mm. She'd been um, retired for 10 years, has two children. So I'm like... I'm going to go to do the biggest thing in my life with somebody I don't know who doesn't speak my language mm. um, fluently and who probably isn't up for the tax. She'd never set up a tent. She'd never used a camelback. Whoa. She'd never used disc brakes. I mean, so, and really I was like, well, fine, I'll meet her. We'll see how it goes. And then I'll just, I'll just leave her and I'll do the ride myself if I have to do it. And that was just part of it. But what ended up happening was really great is, you know, we became teachers for each other and I had to teach her about the equipment and nutrition and endurance and wait for her. And she really taught me to slow down and look around and try to communicate with someone non-verbally. Mm-hmm. And I think had I gone and done that ride queen of pain style, mm-hmm. I would not have discovered, you know, the magic of that place and everything that was waiting there for me, the lessons of culture and it would have patience. been a 20 minute documentary. It would have been point. a 20 minute documentary yeah. and, you know, learning to slow down and learning the patience and to open my eyes and instead of ha- take the blinders off really from this racehorse athlete to going on a journey that mm-hmm. still was f- totally physically arduous and the longest thing I've ever done. But that was the easy part. The hardest part really was letting go. And had I not had a slower, less experienced teammate um, who was probably more evolved than me emotionally, mm-hmm. I'm more evolved than she physically, um, but we really both gave something to each other in that way. And, you know, I have to thank Nick Shrunk, the creative director, for putting that together because I was pissed about that choice and that decision and not getting to meet her, not even get to Skype with her, nothing. You know, when you see in the yeah. film, I'm meeting her, going to her home in... Hanoi, for, I'm meeting her truly for the first time. And I'm, you know, evaluating my teammate, looking her up and down and just going, Uh-oh. you know, <laughs> this isn't going to work. But it pushed me to learn something that, you know, in my 40s, I, you know, my dad was teaching me. He taught me this lesson by this whole expedition coming together in this way. And mm-hmm. it really did expand me as an athlete and as a person. It seems like that that um, it's not really a confrontation, but maybe it's a distinction or a dichotomy between personalities, really <laughs> was highlighted through a nine-hour cave expedition. So in the middle of this thing, there's this, you're in the dark for nine hours mm-hmm. with half kayak, half bike, kind of, mm-hmm. you just have to move all this equipment through. How, how, what's the distance on that cave? Um, I think it ended up being um, 13 or 14 kilometers. You know, it wasn't super far. No, and this was part of the stress of me not knowing where the end of the cave was. Mm. And of course, you can't use navigational equipment in a cave. Right. And so a lot of my stress is I'm responsible for this person. Mm-hmm. You know, she's doesn't has never been in a kayak in the middle of a cave in the middle of Laos. And so there is a, a survival stress mm. of... I don't know how long we need our light batteries to work. Should we turn everything off? Mm-hmm. And that was really stressful because I felt responsible for her, mm-hmm. her safety. But I also um, was really frustrated with not knowing. And that, again, that like not having control mm-hmm. of the situation. And there's, you know, the film crew's obviously in there with us. Right. And so part of that frustration was also, you know, 
hurry up to them as well um, because we were truly then in that situation um, in a little survival team mm -hmm. and I didn't care about the footage at that point. And just because it's a production doesn't mean your guys are okay. Like, exactly. Yeah. And that, and I was the most experienced person in that cave at that time. As so you took as, that responsibility. I did. And that it stress really yeah. shows in the film. You know, yeah. I wasn't angry at Huen or, you know, for anything like that. It was more, I'm responsible for all of us. Let's, you know, we need to keep moving. Yeah. That was um, a really dramatic <laughs> part, but I, I, I like, you guys came out of the cave and then there was, um, it seems like she was very shooken up by the whole experience and she was on the end of her limit and there was a moment where you're just like 30 minutes we have to go mm -hmm. and, and to see her change you go okay like she took it so seriously that it was like oh i have to be i have to continue to be this person that you need to be like the goal enforced her actions she was very dedicated to mm -hmm. my mission which mm -hmm. i you know a total stranger mm -hmm. you know we bonded in that way. You know, she lost she lost her mother at a young age. Her husband had died recently, mm -hmm. and I think she really took on this mission with me. And she pushed physically at that moment that you're talking about. She was done. I she, I'd been pushing her hard, mm -hmm. but we had a goal of a place to get to. I was trying to get you know to the tree to the crash site mm -hmm. by the date of the anniversary of his crash, and I was pushing her hard, and we were behind schedule. And yeah, I was, it was that fine balance of, and this is where the adventure racing experience came in, um, knowing she was physically at her limit, mm -hmm. but going, okay, we're going to take half hour, get some food and drink, and we're going to keep moving and mm. see what happens. And she did. She stepped up over and over again. I, I Like I said, I thought she'd get through the first few days of the ride and sort of crack and crumble, and then I just do it myself and she didn't she every morning she'd get up we'd do it again we'd do it again we'd do it again and it was it was really impressive so this is one of the most maybe uh, i would say what i appreciate most about looking at what you've done and what you do is that there's two really distinct different things um, one is this organization of rebecca's private idaho which is an amazing event it's easy to get to it's easy to like jump in and do it's not easy to actually do but it's easily it's all planned right like there's a cute little town outside and there's coffee shops and there's food next by and there's you know the quaff competition like it, it, it's a very like it's like a it's a festival of things that you like and then there's this other thing which i think maybe you don't know that you're teaching but you are teaching which is if you just set something up in a faraway land from A to B, yeah, there's logistics, and but you don't need an actual race or event to go have an adventure. Like you can set up your own adventure. And granted, okay, it doesn't have to be a documentary with Red Bull behind it, but that this is kind of what I think we always like to share with people is like you don't, it doesn't need to be special to be profound. Mm -hmm. And in fact, quite the opposite sometimes. Like sometimes when we build expectations to an event that's very official and it has, you know, a podium at the end, that kind of ruins the experience because it takes the focus away from you being internal the whole time. And one of the things that you do both of these so well, and that documentary really highlighted it for me, something that we always try to tell people is like, just go out, find it. It doesn't matter where you go. You just get on your bike and go and you'll have an experience at some point. Granted, you probably should do 1200 miles in you know it's conflict it's ridden like hearing this it kind of it, it's reminding me of the 
um, when I met Kristen in Kathmandu and she had just ridden her bike across India and, you know, started out with a friend and her friend like made it a couple of weeks and then decided I need to go home. And then Kristen was like, well, I'm going to keep pedaling because, and no organization, no nothing. She just like kind of, I, I don't think it was a dartboard kind of situation mm -hmm. of, of, with the, uh, you know, throwing a dart at a map. Um, but it was just, but it was like completely unorganized uh, apart from I need to get on a plane at this time in yeah. order to, and then after that just sort it out to have an incredible experience and then the flip side of that is yeah every time I've had to do something with a film crew it's been a pretty disagreeable experience it's really hard it's uh, so, and I will yeah. say what I was so focused on that goal and that eventually we and the fact that the film crew were all on motorcycles they i mean that was the only there was no accessibility and so they were having an expedition of their own right. and when we be, started to gel into and when i played my dad's song and they heard my dad's voice it was like we were like film crew and talent before that mm -hmm. and then when i played his song and you know we're all sweaty we're in the middle of the jungle that's where we actually became a team and mm -hmm they were suffering just as much as I was on the motorcycles. And I think that's what allowed me to forget that there was a film crew there. And I can't remember when, you know, the, the scene when I got to the crash site and I don't actually remember the film crew being there. And that's a real test. I couldn't have told you where they were standing, what they were doing. And it's a real testament to the fact that through those many, many days together and us all physically breaking down, they became teammates. I trusted them. I no longer, we were no longer fighting each other hmm. and, and they blended into the background they, for me. They could become invisible. Yeah. And I was when allowed they... to have that experience naturally as they were trying to get on film, which is so hard yeah. to, to, to make it happen. And it really is a testament to them, you know, three people, basically super small film crew, um, yeah. making that happen and allowing me to experience that kind of emotion without, feeling like there's a camera over me. I, I don't remember them being there in those really deep moments. Hmm. I, yeah, I'd have to say that when you, when you played your dad's song, I was like, this is fake. Like th this is completely staged. Like there's no way this is real because it is, it's too, like it was too well done. Like it was too beautiful of a, like that song fit the story so perfectly that I couldn't like fathom how that was real. But, it was. I mean, you can yeah. tell it's real because I look terrible. Every looks terrible. It's yeah. not set up right. It's a small camera. They didn't have cameras set up. Uh, it was such a good thing Thank to you. just be like, good things like this can happen in, in their organic experience. And I hope that my takeaway from that film is uh, like to go see the world on two wheels is still what I think the best way to see the world. Well, and this is what I love about cycling. It's it's this universally accepted mode of transportation. And, you know, we'd go through these villages that had never seen a white person. They'd never seen people on carbon fiber bicycle <laughs> or anything like that. But you roll into a village, you take your sunglasses off, they see your bike, and it's obvious you're on a journey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instantly everyone understands what you're doing. And it's the same whether you're I'm riding a bike in Italy, mm -hmm. in Idaho, in Laos. Um, the bike is this understood vehicle for, for going on a journey. And I think that maybe that's something that um, 
Uh, it's hard to vocalize, but that's something that is missing more frequently from our culture is to have adventures and to have seekers and to have people that pass through your life momentarily that are seeking for things. Like they're, they're looking for something and they come in, they have a profound experience, they influence the people around them, the people around them influence them, and they are what... They're what passes, maybe they pass ideas or they pass cult, like in between borders before there was the internet, they were responsible for basically spreading culture. And I think that's missing because we have this artificial sense that if I can see a picture on Google, I've been there. Or if I send somebody an email, that's the same as a conversation. And it's not the same thing as pedaling to somebody's house and saying hello to them. And that, that when you strip everything down and use that in, endurance effort in order to have a conversation with somebody, whether it's on a race or at their house or on the adventure that you went on, there is nothing that compares to that. And if anything, I think the things that you're doing really support something that I've always thought was a really wonderful experience of like why I like to bike, why, why I like to go to other countries and be on a bike first and foremost to look at it differently. Because you know, electric, an e-bike is faster. It's not the same thing. There's something that is inherently different when I pedal up a hill and I see the view than if I get a ride to the top and I see the view, I take a quick picture and then I leave. But I also think it's it's when other people recognize that you are also your own engine. Mm-hmm. Like, and the e-bike kind of takes that away mm-hmm. in a sense. That yeah. uh, when I see someone who's just pedaling and suffering and like, okay, I know, I, I recognize that. You know they're physically dedicated to the task and that they are they're actually toiling and giving their sweat and their effort you know instead of jumping in a car instead of jumping on a motorcycle you know and i use both those things too but Mm -hmm. there is something very different about your own physical journey and and people do welcome you in and accept that there's a woman in italy named paola who um i snuck into her house in the middle of the night um i was on a multi-day um bikepacking race self-supported and it's raining and cold and i was um basically hallucinating because I was sleep deprived, making navigational errors, freezing cold. My, my body was shutting down. I had down coat, everything on and still shivering. I couldn't pedal fast enough to be warm. I knew I needed to mm-hmm. sleep and get shelter, but there was nothing around. And there was this sort of little farmhouse. And I mean, I was looking for culverts. I was looking mm-hmm. for anything. And I, it was, I think, two or three in the morning. I went up, tried the door. The door was open looked in the window there was like a really nice blue couch and uh oh my god <laughs> i was just it was survival so i set my bike outside i'm like okay i can sleep for a couple hours. i can be up and out before anybody wakes up so i opened the door and i went in and i slept on the couch um i kept my helmet on i kept all my stuff on i mean i was shivering cold survival and oh set my little alarm i snuck in and yeah snuck into her broke into her house didn't break it and slept for a couple hours. My alarm went off and I was like, oh, just, you know, just yeah. one more, just 15 more snooze minutes, button. just 15 more minutes. I had the snooze button. <laughs> so then sure enough, um, I'm, you know, start, starting to be like, okay, I really need to get out of here. And I start rustling around to get ready to leave. And a dog comes running down the stairs, barking, barking, barking at me and alerts the whole household. Dogs barking. Uh Oh, Italian woman who doesn't speak any English comes down the stairs in her underwear. We're staring at each other. I'm in my bike helmet and my stuff. And all I know is scoozy, scoozy, like, excuse me. Like kind of just trying to gesture, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the dog's barking and she's staring at me and 
she just looks at me and then her face softens and she just says, cafe? So we go into her kitchen. She's smoking cigarettes. She's making espresso. She's bringing out cake for me. I'm using Google Translator on my phone. She's like, basically, where are you going from? You know, I'm going from Rome to Garda, and she's like, "Oh, I have more cake, basically more cake, more cake." (laughs) You're gonna need more cake. (laughs) And I put into my phone, "You are my guardian angel," and I showed it to her, and uh, she's like, "You know, my name's Paola, my name's Rebecca," and I'll never see her again. But um, like you said, I came in and out of her life, and she came in and out of mine, and she didn't get mad at me for sleeping on her couch and breaking into her house. (laughs) And I finished the race. But she'll probably tell that same story story from her perspective a thousand times over and you have like we have these stories where we can collide with people in 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 these human endeavors that are so ridiculous if i pulled up in my car though and broke into your house and she came down in the morning and i just oh yeah i'm traveling i needed a place to sleep i wouldn't have the same reception as oh you were you pedaled from rome to here and you have two more days to go so there's a credit and a currency that is only afforded by effort. Yeah. And I think like that might be, and it's something that we talk about, like if, if you get, it is not the position that you end up, it's not on the podium, it's this effort. And you also touched on this yesterday, because I think this is a very valuable thing, is you, you give an award obviously to the fastest people, they're magnificent thoroughbreds. But you also acknowledge that the person who took the longest to finish is likely the hardest person out there. Like they, they deserve recognition yeah. because what- And likely the person most affected yeah. by having gone out there, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of the more powerful part in a way that yes, there's where we are. Yeah, the, the front of the race, it's a, it's a completely different, you know, world yeah. in a sense. But I think like, what I marveled at yesterday was, you know, everybody's starting together. And I don't know how many were in that, the, the, you know, the big potato part of it. Um, but, you know, like this big, big group that rolls out together. And then and then within a couple of hours, you're starting, you know, you start to see a lot of people just like out there by themselves mm-hmm. having their vision quest yeah. or whatever. And, and then, and, and uh, you know, they're, part of this group and then they go have this individual experience and then you come back to the group and you get to share that with other people who had similar well know, that's why people ask me like how big will you make it and i we may be nearing you know the maximum because i do want yes i want that community you know aspect in town we're all celebrating at the start and at the finish but i also want people to have the ability to, to have that remote feeling and to be alone and to hear the wind you know blowing yeah. and because that's, I mean, that type of riding and sports experience has been um, life altering for me. And mm-hmm. so I do want to allow that to happen out there if people choose it. Yeah. I, um, so you've pretty much done it all. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> well, leading into the question of what's on the horizon you know, my, well, for my sports horizon, what's really exciting and what, um, you know, I feel like is an evolution of what I've done is that my adventure racing and my, my bike racing are kind of, um, combining and the Ho Chi Minh trail really 
reinforce that I love going on expeditions and the bike is such a perfect way to travel for that. So now I'm looking at, you know, Lewis and Clark Trail, the Silk Road, other famous trails in the world or journeys, you know, can can I go do them and plan those expeditions? So yeah, it's more like being a bike expedition athlete is where mm. I'm evolving to. And, you know, I'll always race and do those things because those challenges are really good to keep pushing me. But really what I want to do is continue to explore on my bike and map out, you know, even around Idaho, there are all these routes to piece together that are self-supporting and, you know, maybe you're leapfrogging between, um, you know, facilities or hotels or places where you can get water, but, but really kind of going, continuing to go on a journey, um, that is still really super physically challenging, but different than, you know, standing on a podium is a different kind of a podium and maybe using some of those types of journeys or you know the 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 telling the story of those journeys um in a way that uh supports let's say cycling advocacy or yeah i mean i think to um, being able like blood road really showed me the power of being able to tell a story you know and show people i could have done the ho chi minh trail experience on my own and not been able to share it with everybody and being able to share that was so powerful and really moved people who were veterans who served their cyclists other families and seeing that i could have that effect by just sharing a story or a journey or a history, learning about the unexploded ordinance there and the bombs that are still left. You know, that has mm -hmm. been yeah. a message that came from that ride, um, a way to actually affect change and do good things. And so I do want to document, you know, probably not in a feature length film sort of thing, but telling the stories of the history of the Lewis and Clark trail and what's mm -hmm. there now and, and how do we keep more trails open and, and preserve, preserve you know being able to people being able to go and ride your bike so I, I think that is a bigger broader broader sort of evolution of yes these own my own personal expeditions that are really exciting as an athlete but yeah then tell the story of who's there what's there what's the trail look like what are the people like you know and then maybe maybe mark twight wants to go ride there next year or go explore and travel and and go to Kyrgyzstan or go wherever it is, if I can show people what's out there in that way, um, then it's sort of kind of a win-win for me personally, but also giving back from, you know, using my bike as a vehicle for change, really. Maybe Mark wants to ride the Crusher with Rebecca next year. <laughs> if you're fat, are you going to train for it? I'm, I, I don't know if I can be fast <laughs> I'm enough. I, it's I, a good race. Maybe it's I, a really good race. I call someone and, you know. Get some tips. Get some tips. Get some time crunch <laughs> tips. <laughs> time crunched athlete. I, first, thanks for inviting us into your space. But you know, I, I always like to look around mostly at people's bookshelves. <laughs> uh, okay. I already flipped through a lot of them, just so you know. That might be weird. So, <laughs> you know, Mary Ellen Mark over here, mm -hmm. which, okay, yeah, I could do without Tim Ferriss, but that's... Uh, <laughs> That's, that's, that's a, not my but, book. <laughs> that, but then I look over here and I see oh, the Time Life book series. <laughs> and I see the book, the one single book in my life as a child that made me a climber is on that shelf. Mountaineering mm -hmm. Freedom of the Hills? No, no. The Mountains in oh, that nice. Time Life series, fourth or fifth up from the bottom, right above oh, the right. sea. Because there's these incredible pictures of the first ascents in the, Himal in the, in the Himalayas. Oh. The beautiful red Chamonix granite mm. all came from that 
fucking book that was uh yeah my dad's book and i think the current version of that though is showing people like if you hadn't seen that book and maybe you know like blood road is the way to show people now you show them the ho chi Minh trail and it's so important the way we communicate is different and i think we can do so in a um using the technological means in in a way that um uh, allows us to communicate perhaps more effectively to give people not just you know, but that book was, you know, it came, it required a lot of one's imagination as well, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, sometimes when we communicate too effectively with technology, we reduce the person's ability to imagine mm-hmm. it in a way. But um, the, I, I, I think that this, this, the, the storytelling of, I mean, it's, it's the, why do we do this podcast? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's because there are, people have these incredible have had you know many people have had you know pretty amazing experiences or, or what sound amazing and then we the more that people talk about them the more we realize like wow every these are they're human experiences therefore they are accessible to all human beings i think that's a responsibility we have as you know as you age or you know become an ambassador whatever you want to call it we have a responsibility to share our experiences and what we know because then that's the next generation is going to pick up from there and and pass us along the way but but i we have a responsibility for that so thanks for doing the podcast well i mean uh you're welcome um but and and thank you for like uh this has come up numerous times but you know like oh we had these incredible adventures in the mountains a lot of them involve a certain amount of risk and this and that and like you don't get to pass on the lessons. You don't get to tell the stories unless you come back. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming back. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to our next bike ride together. I'm. <clears throat> we can we can make it a formal thing. You know, I can hire you as a coach because I because like I said, no, I don't know how to drive. On, let's just go on a bike ride. <laughs> let's go on a bike ride. Yeah. But I'm. Um, yeah, some of the things like on stage one when you were behind me and we were descending. Um, it's stuff that my mountain bike mentor that like, he'd be just pissed. Like I told you that two years ago, you're still not doing it. You're still, <laughs> had this whole thing about like, don't crush the sparrow. I'm yeah. Like, I'm like, what? He's <laughs> like, no, just ha- hold the handlebars lightly. And I'm like, I'm holding the handlebars. He goes, yes, you're, you're choking the sparrow. You just need to <laughs> let the bike do its thing. And I get like, I can't get it out of my head now. I'm like, every time I find myself like gripping too hard, I'm like, ah, we, have, I bird. have a solution for that is okay. you need to do a 24 hour race and about hour 16 or so. So you stop crushing the sparrow. Yeah. Yeah. And you figure out. I'm so exhausted. I can't crush the sparrow anymore. So then you start riding better. Exactly. I mean, and that's actually where this is Ed, um, who's a mountain climbing client of mine. And we did some cool stuff together. And then when he, for a variety of reasons, he, you know, he started riding a mountain bike. And then because he had the financial means and because he's just as obsessive as some other people in this room, um, he, you know, got like, hired all of the best people that he could to be around him and help him. And he just like fast tracked his trajectory to the extent that like in his fourth year of, um, racing or fourth year of riding a mountain bike, third or fourth year, he represented the U S at the world 24 hour championships in Canberra. Hmm. And, um, and he said a lot of what he learned 
came after hour 12, you know, yeah. of any of these type of events Absolutely. that you just, it's exactly what we were talking about before. You just get out like, of your own way. And yeah. the, I can help the, you with that cycling. <laughs> <laughs> Because for me, it's the it's the driving. I mean, I realize how much time I lose in some of these sections that I end up having to you know pay for because I have the fitness with which to pay up to a certain point. That goes away. Technical ability ideally stays with you no matter how exhausted you are. Yeah, I mean, and I won a lot of races that way with really poor technical ability, but just um, more drive and motivation and a little more fitness and maybe more desire, and uh, you know, it, it works. Like you said, if you have a, a weakness, you make up for it with um, your other strengths. So yeah, you did a great race this week. You had a, you had a good one. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it 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 made me realize though the truth of this, the few ski, the ski mountaineering racing that I did, and realize like wow, to take a minute out of somebody going uphill is way harder than to do it downhill it's true <laughs> and no matter how fit you are if some it doesn't matter because if somebody's descending better than you are on a bike mm -hmm. they just passed you for free yeah like it didn't cost them anything you just yeah. like inverted your lungs trying to like you know take time out of them on the uphill and then they're just like give you another throw the horns at you on the way by <laughs> so demoralizing <laughs> but it also indicates like oh here's clearly something that can be changed yeah it's an opportunity absolutely yeah, yeah. all right we'll work on that uh, descending skill okay perfect perfect <laughs> and um i don't know about michael but uh i'm pretty sure i'll be back next year yeah awesome absolutely. 50 miles or maybe 60 now nah, i can probably do 100 again but whatever we'll just get look i you've had a bike for like or an appropriate bike for like a month you so. have a year to train and it's, it's only 94 miles it's not 100 you know yeah. so my, my training program went out the the window which was pretty basic but it still went out the window because i kept breaking parts and then it was in the shop for two weeks so i got it back the day before i came up here so it's like so now you know what to expect there's a lot of yeah. power in just knowing the course and knowing yeah. the hill and you know you love the hill and it is I fun mean, yeah i think i mean not only would i come back for it no matter what rendition happens i would bring people with me because it's something that you want to experience with other people like chris um it, he he mentioned doing it he's like oh, i'm gonna do the 50 he's like you have to do the 100 it was fine i just wanted him to do it for mm -hmm. sure and to see his face today about like he's like i had no idea what you guys were ever talking about because he's never done endurance sports he's never done a bike race he now at least has something that he can talk about and think about and that's what I want more people to do. It's like, here, feel this, and then we can have a conversation later. So it, when I come back next year, I'll bring people with me for sure. It is bonding to be on the same course. Even if you were riding alone, mm -hmm. you all come back and talk about the same hill, the same wind, yep. the same. So you have this shared mm -hmm. collective but alone solo experience at the same time. That's what I really love about it. I'm actually pretty sure the wind was, the headwind was blowing harder on me <laughs> yeah. than yeah, anyone yeah. else. Well, there's this old <laughs> philosophical question of like, when I dip my foot in the river, it's a different river than you dip your foot in. But when the wind blows us, it's the same it's fucking wind. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I had got behind Tim Johnson in that section and was just like, oh, great, you're here. Thanks. Don't nice. mind if I do. Yeah, right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, having us come to your house and, and your other house outside, which was also just as lovely. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Oh, Thank you. It, it wouldn't be any fun if, if nobody came. <laughs> <laughs> um, RebeccaRush.com. 
Yes, that is my website. Blood Road is available to see. Is it everywhere? Everywhere. So everywhere. Netflix, iTunes. Everywhere. It's um yeah, bloodroadfilm.com has all of the details. Um, it is online. Uh, people can still host a screening. And I'm taking. I take trips back, small group trips, um, to Laos every year. I'm taking another one this summer. Wow. Um, for 15 people only, small group. But cool. I take people back onto the section sections of the trail. So oh, nice. I do have another trip going in December. Nice. And uh, and yeah, and camps here in Idaho, bringing people to Idaho and. Fat bike races and yeah, really just trying to share what I know and and share my experience. So I hope you guys can join me on something besides private Idaho. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I think that's probably going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And thank you for yeah the, um, bringing us to your house yesterday, bringing us to your house today, and for uh, Rush to Glory too. Your book is out. Which, I do. Yeah, I do yeah. have a book. And you have I another think, one? Coming? No, not yet. Oh. I have another one in my head oh, that okay. will be happening, um, hopefully. But yeah, I do have a book. And I, I think that was a big... Writing that book was um, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I mean, I understand physical, like, just try harder and the results happen. But that doesn't work <laughs> with writing. Um, <laughs> And yeah. it was a very foreign process for me to try hard and not have a result come. Right. And really what I did find out, it was a big revelation for me, is when I leave the desk and go outside. And Diesel, my dog, was my savior because he'd make me go outside with him and go on a trail run or do something. And suddenly the ideas would open up, the blood mm -hmm. flow to the brain, and I could come back and, and put some of those ideas on paper. And it made me realize that I have to always be active because right. it is the way that I think and breathe and live. It's the moving meditation. It is. And it's in tribute to, I guess, what would support a very good writer from this area. Yes. Very good is probably an <laughs> understatement, but <laughs> the Hemingway way was to go wander on a bike sometimes. And well, you probably did it smoking or drinking or whatever, but he was outside in nature. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of creative souls, mm -hmm. you know, they seem tortured some of the people who have to sit at desks and write things but i do think getting outside at least for me is is a therapy and i think more people should get outside on that note we do too <laughs> and uh and we're gonna get outside like now right now yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. all right thank you very much thanks you guys thanks.